Liam Byrne, it's very good to have you with me on 20 Questions With. The hook for this interview is this important new book of yours. It's by no means your first book. It's called The Inequality of Wealth, Why It Matters and How to Fix It. And it is it has been written at a particularly key moment, I'd argue, in the political conversation, because we are careering, are we not, towards a vital general election. So I want to get a really good sense of what you're arguing for in the book. I should say that you've been an MP now for almost two decades. Your 20th anniversary for being MP of Birmingham Hodge Hill is coming up in the summer. You are currently the chair of the Business and Trade Committee. You served as Chief Secretary to the Treasury under Gordon Brown in his cabinet. Is it Chief Secretary to the Treasury or of the Treasury? I think it's to the Treasury. That's a great question now you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're not certain, then I I feel less bad about not being certain myself. Liam, it's good to see you. Thank you for for having me. Let's start with this idea of inequality. Mm. Explain to us in simple terms, just, just to start with, why it matters. So, Inequality matters in a very simple way, because if some people in society have lots, then de facto there is less for others. And and right now we've got a situation where, frankly, the super rich have never had it so good. You've got sales of luxury cars and super yachts and private jets literally at an all time high at a time where in constituencies like mine, you've got food banks that are running out of food. So you've got this absurdity of affluence on the one hand and real desperate poverty on the other. So that's that's what really motivated me to, to write the book, because I serve the constituency that's got the highest level of child poverty in Britain, the highest level of fuel poverty in Britain. But even if you don't care about those kind of big gaps, the book argues that everybody should worry about inequality, because when you look around the world at societies that are unequal, what you basically see is that they become poorer because people avoid paying tax if they're very, very wealthy. You get this problem of corruption because big money seeps into politics. And third, social mobility tends to collapse as one generation hands its privileges onto another. So if you want to avoid countries becoming poor, corrupt and stagnant, then you should worry about inequality too, even if you're not bothered about the basic injustice of the problem. So I want to talk about things such as inheritance tax, and I want to punch out this very interesting connection you've made between wealth and freedom. But first, what would you say to those who might put it to you that New Labour had a chance to do something about inequality and didn't do nearly enough, and that the gap between the poorest and the rich was something you guys could have done far more to work on? And, And some might say you failed in that. Mm. Well, I mean, I was obviously a new Labour minister, and that was where my politics started. Part of the reason for writing this book is that I wanted to reflect on some of the things that I don't think we got 100% right. We obviously made some big progress, things like the national minimum wage was really important, introduction of tax credits were really important. And so you were beginning to see wealth inequality come down under Labour. I think on reflection, though, there were some things that we should have done Um, and that we didn't. And I became most troubled about this in about 2008, 2009, when I came back from visiting Joe Biden's team in Washington. At the time, Joe Biden had just set up what he called the middle class task force that was looking at what was happening to um, wages for working people in America. I came back from that trip and asked Alistair Darling 
God rest his soul, whether we could set up something similar in the UK. And he said, no, but you can have a team to go and research the problem. And then about September 2009, I uncovered the problem that we then came to call in politics, the squeezed middle. That was the first time that we saw in the UK that we had also had a problem where a big, big chunk of the working age population had not had a pay rise since about 2004, 2005. And so that made me you know, that that basically sparked what has been an obsession for the last 10 to 15 years, looking at how we reform the marketplace and how we reform government in this country to create a more equal society. Do you think it is possible to create a more equal society? Do you think vested interests, do you think the wealthy and the powerful, and they often go hand in hand, will allow that? I think we can because it's actually in self-interest. So what you can see in, and, and the book tries to set this out, is that when you've got really unequal societies, that has a political impact. So you get politics that is much more febrile. Um, you get the rise of populism. You get politics that is much, much more unstable. And actually, it's Professor Ben Ansel at Oxford who's really uncovered a lot of this. What you can see is that when people's wealth does not keep pace with, say, the national average, they're much more likely to vote for things like Brexit uh, or Le Pen in France or the far right in Scandinavia or the, or Trump in America. So when you've got inequality, you get political instability that is really damaging for growth too so you know even if you're a kind of you know a member of the super rich you know one of the reasons that you should be interested in creating a more equal society is that it's actually good for political stability too you make the point in the book that you went door to door ahead of that referendum the scottish referendum scottish independence referendum yeah. 2014 and that some people who were really struggling economically, saw that message of independence and nationalism as some sort of way out or some sort of beacon of hope. And I think you feel that that was illusory. And that's an example, isn't it, of what you've just been saying? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the in, in politics, the opposite of populism is sometimes separatism. So when you've got the rise of populists um, and they take control of capitals, they're Ultimately, they're tribalists, you know, and tribalists are, you know, whereas nationalists are bad for nations, tribalists are actually bad for uh, for good government because they tend to go to war on the institutions. They tend to weaken the capacity of states to do what they're supposed to do. And populists provoke a reaction. And in large parts of the world, the kind of reaction that I think you'll see now are, are people saying, well, look, I just... I can't bear those populists that have just taken control in the capital. I think our particular part of the country should go its own way. And it's, you know, it's ironic in a way. When I was at business school 20 years ago, we were looking at case studies on whether China could hold together. Now people are writing books about whether America can hold together. And I think there are lots of European countries where those separatist forces uh, will become stronger and stronger if wealth inequality across the West gets worse and worse and populism the, the energy in populism gets stronger as a result. I just should say, in the case of that Scottish independence election, that David Cameron was the prime minister at the time. So th that wasn't a question of populism, was it? But there was austerity being implemented. There was, and there was a sense that people felt that things couldn't get any worse. And that's what that's how a lot of people feel right now, frankly. They feel, well, look, you know, I'm prepared to take some bold political experiments with my vote because things are so bad, I can't see how they would get worse. And that's, you know, that's 
that's a recipe for unstable politics. Let me just ask you about austerity briefly, because mm. the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition came under a lot of fire for its policy of austerity. And there are those who think it went too far, perhaps or too, too quickly, maybe too far and too quickly. You actually were, and you say this in your book in as many words, were beginning as the Chief Secretary to the Treasury to implement a policy of what you felt was necessary austerity following the financial crash? Yeah, once you've got huge government deficits, you know, somebody has to lend you the money to cover those deficits. And if the bond market feels that you haven't got a plan, then they're going to charge you more money. So if you want to keep interest rates low when you're financing those deficits, you've got to have a plan for how ultimately you're going to balance the books. And when you're putting together a plan for balancing the books, you've got to do three things. You've got to think about how can you grow the economy? Um, second, you've got to think about what are the sensible and fair tax rises to put through. And then third, you've got to think about what are some of the efficiencies that you want to do to put forward to save money. And then you've got to figure out a fourth dimension, which is over what time period to do it. And we put together what was quite a delicately balanced plan. We were going to halve the deficit in four years. We'd figured out how much to raise in tax, how much to save for efficiencies. And we thought we'd had the balance right to avoid the big thing we wanted to avoid, which was a double dip recession. Now, when the coalition government came in, they threw that plan in the bin and they tried to basically balance the books by implement, but basically 90%, they wanted to close 90% of the gap through spending cuts rather than through a measured balance of tax rises and spending cuts. And that basically threw the economy into the slow lane. And so growth slowed down. And that meant that George Osborne missed his budget forecast time after time after time. At one point, I seem to remember he blamed the slowing economy on the snow. Do you remember that? Uh, but, you know, it was basically because he'd got the, the balance of the plan um, off. And ultimately, they had to come back to something closer to the plan that um, Gordon Brown and Alastair Darling left. Liam, we'll come back to growth because I think that's really important. And I'd be fascinated to get a sense of where you see the role of growth a fairer society, a more equal society. And it's a, a buzzword, isn't it, ever since Liz Truss's failed premiership. But first of all, just to address this note that I'm sure you've addressed ad nauseum. In fact, I was, as part of my research for this interview, reading an article you wrote in, about, I think, May 2015, expressing great regret for the note that you left your successor in the Treasury. But it, it, it essentially said, really sorry, but there is no money. And you have expressed regret. It was a private note, wasn't it, that David Laws then revealed publicly. And I think he's personally apologised to you for revealing that publicly. I mean, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Just very quickly address that note. And how significant do you think that became? Because it wasn't just waved around by David Cameron during the 2015 general election campaign where he won his overall majority, but it has also been used fairly recently, actually, as we build towards this general election by the incumbent Conservatives. Yeah, so there's an old tradition. It goes back to Churchill, actually, in the 1930s of one team leaving a note for the successor team to say, oh, look, it's all pretty terrible. So Churchill was the first to do it. Um, Reginald Maudlin, I think, very famously left a, a note saying, sorry, you know, old cock, there's no money left in the till. Um, and so I, very foolishly, I honoured that tradition in the note that I left for my successor. And my successor, David Laws, was the first to break the tradition and reveal the note no one's ever done that before. Uh, and of course, he then lost his job a few days later in an expenses scandal and indeed then lost his seat uh, when David Cameron came to wave the very note around in his constituency. So 
Um, nonetheless, it was it was a it was a terrible kind of mistake, and I suppose that's one of the motivations for writing the book, really, because the book is the note that I wish I'd left about what I'd seen really going wrong in the British economy and in British society and a much kind of bigger and bolder plan for how we can fix actually some of the problems that I picked up all those years ago. So it was a terrible mistake. It was meant as a bit of gallows humour, a bit of good natured gallows humour from one team to another. And of course, I was the person I was the person in government who had to say no to everybody. So I would often as chief secretary, you're basically in charge of public spending. And so I was the person who was having to negotiate this kind of record fiscal consolidation across government. And lots of ministers come into the office and say, well, look, here's my plan for this, that and the other. And I would be the person who would have to say, well, look, that's a great idea, but I'm afraid there's no money to do that. So you can't do it. And in fact, I'm going to need to take some cuts into your budget. So that was you know, the irony of it, I suppose, was I was the person in government who was saying no to everybody and having to drive through this huge spending efficiency programme. Um but that's the story. What's it actually like being in government in a position of that sort of responsibility and having to, I mean, in your case, I think you felt you were a go-between at times between Alistair Darling when he was Chancellor and Gordon Brown when he was Prime Minister. Just give us a sense of the sort of personalities involved or the importance of personality, the importance of personal chemistry and getting on with your colleagues as a mechanism for getting things done. Well, the personal relationships are supremely important because at the end of the day, you are on the same team or at least you're supposed to be. And what gov- what, what the public hates more than anything else is, is governments that look disunited. That's one of the big problems that Rishi Sunak has today is that the Conservative Party is fighting each other like rats in a sack. So on the one hand, you've got to have some difficult conversations with each other. You know, it's not uh, fun for a cabinet minister to have the chief secretary of the Treasury come along and tell them that they can't do lots of things that they wanted to do because they've got to make some spending cuts. Um, that's not a popular message. But, you know, overwhelmingly in the negotiations that I did with the cabinet, people kind of understood what I had to do. They understood and respected the job that I had to deliver. And they knew that the times that we were in after this great financial crisis, we'd had to make these huge sacrifices to stop a global recession becoming another Great Depression. And people knew that we basically had to pay the bills for having avoided that fate. So people were kind of with the project, if you see what I mean. They, they knew that the task had to be done. They were generally pretty respectful. You know, they obviously argued like hell. But ultimately, if you can't maintain a level of respect and humour and good, strong personal relationships, then it's really, really messy and difficult to do something that is that big and difficult. Is it true that Gordon Brown would ask you to say one thing on the radio and then Alistair Darling would ask you to say another? And did you play a role as a sort of go-between the the pair of them for a period? Well, we had to try and make sure that Number 10 in the Treasury were singing from the same song sheet. I suppose that's the way I'd put it. And sometimes there were different views about what the notes on the song sheet should be. And me and my team, I had a brilliant team around me um, to have to play a role in trying to make sure that there was um, a bit more harmony sometimes. But I mean, Alistair and Gordon went way back and they knew each other. But there was a big division in labor at the time about the way that we presented what we needed to do so there were people who said that we needed to make sure there was a big dividing line between labor and conservatives about investment versus cuts Um, and there were others myself included who wanted to say with a bit more candor i suppose um, more about some of the sacrifices that lied ahead because i felt that 
people, you know, people aren't stupid. People knew that there were going to be sacrifices. People knew that the aftermath of a great financial crisis is not a land of milk and honey. And I think if you level with the British public, they, you know, they they, they, they tend to get it, and they, you know, they 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 live in the real world. They know that things can't be great all the time and sometimes difficult decisions have to be taken. Just going to give you space to trumpet some of the achievements of New Labour, actually, because I think that's important. Gosh. In the case of Gordon Brown, I mean, he got a bad rap as Prime Minister, didn't he? And he perhaps never recovered from being seen to run away from calling a general election when he took over from from Tony Blair. He was seen to be scared of George Osborne's policy on inheritance tax. But actually, he played a very, very important role in helping to drag the world out of the financial crisis, didn't he? And he was in many ways an impressive figure. I mean, the financial crisis, you know, which we've got to be really clear, this was a financial crisis made on Wall Street. And that's not my judgment or a European judgment. That's the judgment of the United States Congress. It was the United States Congress special inquiry that said the centuries were asleep at their posts. And that's how this great kind of explosion on Wall Street happened. And in an interconnected economy, then obviously that's got an impact on us, as it did across the rest of Europe too. But that crash, the worst since 1929, would have become a Great Depression if it wasn't for Gordon Brown. It was Gordon Brown that basically quarterbacked the great G20 meeting that brought together the 20 biggest economies together, the leaders of the 20 biggest economies together in London, to agree a plan that gave global markets their confidence back. And so I genuinely think that Gordon's role in that is undersung. Um, he was really a kind of a, a hero of that moment. And that was the reflection, you know, that was the kind of apex of what was an extraordinary career as, as Chancellor of the Exchequer before that. If you think about things like the national minimum wage or introducing things like tax credits, the uh, you know, the war on pensioner poverty, the extra money that we were able to surge into um, schools and hospitals um, through to the international work creating Department of International Development, our leadership on things like international debt um, and tackling international poverty. You know, the, these Britain was a leader and at home things genuinely did get better and constituencies like mine, even after 13 years of austerity, are in far better shape because of the investments that we made. We're a we're a poor community in East Birmingham, but, you know, last year we still send more children to school than any other constituency in the West Midlands because of many of the investments that were made in the education system under New Labour. That's a good point at which to return to the book. And let's address this concern of yours that actually wealth and freedom are fundamentally entwined. Yeah. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so in political philosophy, there's a big debate about what freedom is. And generally speaking, on the right, people say, look, freedom is the absence of constraint. On the left, we have a different view about freedom. We see we see it in a positive way. So we're much more interested in whether you genuinely have agency. Do you have options? Do you have control? And there was a great philosopher called Amartya Sen who once explained that for the left, you've got to recognise that poverty is tyranny. It's not just about bad governments. Things like, you know, the, the lack of agency, the lack of options that comes with poverty create real constraints on, on your freedom. And so the argument in the book is that there's a big question about the nature of freedom in the 21st century. If you think about what's going to happen over the next 20, 30 years, incredible things are going to happen. You know, the things that you see in science fiction films were already becoming a reality in our lifetime. And that's before the revolutions in artificial intelligence or genetic medicine or green energy systems or global gigabit 
connectivity. These things are going to add something like 100 trillion pounds to the world economy by 2060. Huge new possibilities are possible. And the question is, does that provide for each of us the freedom to be ourselves, the freedom to live the life that we would seek to choose? And I suppose the argument in the book is that that freedom will be really constrained if none of us have a real sense of security. And if we want to give people a real sense of security, a real sense of power over those, their own lives, then we need to rebuild the wealth owning democracy because it's from wealth that you get security and from security that you get real freedom. And so I suppose that's the kind of big picture philosophical argument that, that underpins um, some of the arguments in the book. And do you therefore find it extraordinary that the Conservatives appear to be talking about cutting inheritance tax, perhaps even abolishing inheritance tax at some point? I do, because what people always forget is that when you cut taxes, you cut the money that goes into public services. And if you defund public services, that means that public services are weaker. And at a time when we've got real challenges in schools, we've got real challenges in the NHS, I think that's not a good way to expand the freedom and liberty that all of us have got. Because, you know, if you're ill and you're on a waiting list for months and months and months because there is an NHS treatment, then actually you're not free to live the life that you want. If you're um, a poor child in a poor school and your teaching assistants have just been sacked, which is what's going on in some of my schools in Hodge Hill right now, then you're not going to get the education that could help you fulfill your true potential and live out your life in a way that maximises your freedom. So, you know, people have just got to kind of join the dots a little bit. When you do cut things like inheritance tax, especially taxes on the on the very wealthy, you are basically defunding the public services that many of us rely on in order to live a good life. What would you say to those who might argue that inheritance tax is a double tax, you're being taxed twice? Might you suggest that actually look at it from the point of view of the person who's inheriting it, and it's a it's a first tax for them rather than a double tax on the person who is divesting themselves of it? Well, and look, there are all kinds of inequities in inheritance tax. And one of the biggest problems with inheritance tax is that once people get to a certain level of wealth, about two to three million, and then the payment of inheritance tax basically collapses. You might remember there was that furore about whether King Charles was going to pay inheritance tax on the estate that he inherited um, from the late Queen. The truth is that if he did pay inheritance tax, he would have been the exception, not the rule, because the people who inherit estates that are significant don't pay inheritance tax because all the estate planning has been done up front and they've managed to find ways to not pay the tax. So that's why one of the things that we should probably look at is what they do in lots of OECD countries around the world, which is not have any inheritance tax, but have a gift tax instead. And, and that means it's the person who actually is receiving the money pays a tax depending on how much it is that they're receiving. And that's probably something that we ought to be looking at in a lot more detail than we have today. We have the seven-year rule, don't we? Which means that if you give money to your children, say, seven years before you die, there is no tax to pay. And then there's that gradation as the years notch down before death and, and taxes, that yeah. the amount of tax you pay is judged accordingly. I mean, would you abolish a seven-year rule? I think you've got to look at inheritance tax in a much more fundamental way. I mean, I, th I, I do think there's a strong argument for a gift tax rather than inheritance tax. And the moment is coming when we need to look at this in a more fundamental way, because nothing's forever, including the baby boomers. As the baby boomers die, they're going to bequeath about five and a half trillion pounds to their heirs. 
And some people will inherit fortunes, but lots of people will inherit maybe just care bills. And what that means is that Gen Z, this great generation that's been born this century, are possibly going to become the most unequal generation um, for half a century. So we are going to have to think about inheritance tax soon. And there's a reason why lots of OECD countries have got a gift tax rather than an inheritance tax. And we should probably get into a public debate about what that could look like in Britain. Let me go back a question or two to an answer you gave about cutting taxes and the risks that that implied to public services. How do you address the old conservative argument that by cutting taxes, you can stimulate growth? And if you have growth, you end up having more money to put into public services. Yeah, so lots of economists have looked at this and and there isn't actually a lot of evidence internationally that proves that if you cut taxes, it triggers investment and growth. It, It all basically comes down to whose taxes are you cutting and what you do with the money. And the problem if you cut taxes for the very wealthy is that they don't spend the money and they don't invest the money. Um, They save the money. They hoard the money. It becomes dead money. They enjoy the fruits of it and they might spend some of it on Rolls Royces and super yachts. Um, But that doesn't actually drive a lot of economic growth. So what there is now is quite a lot of evidence that says if you tax sensibly, so, you know, not too high, don't tax too high in a way that creates bad incentives and then use that money to invest in innovation, then you do create much faster economic growth because ultimately 85% of economic growth comes from innovation. And there's a great phrase, actually, the Royal Society once used, if we don't grow smarter, we grow poorer. And since the turn of the century, science spending around the world has basically tripled, but it's only increased by about 40% in Britain. So Britain is actually now falling behind other countries when it comes to science spending. South Korea is a really good example, but there are lots of other countries like Estonia or Israel, small states where you've got very, very high levels um, of investment in science. And we basically need to do the same thing. Now, why do we do that? Because if you spend more on science and innovation, you create more knowledge intensive jobs. And in in our country, a knowledge intensive job pays about 30% more than the national average. That's about 160 quid a week. So if you want to give people a pay rise, then creating more knowledge intensive jobs for people to go to is probably one of the smartest investments you can make as a country. Okay, so I want to ask you a couple of questions where you lay out your prospectus. Yeah. a a society that isn't riddled with wealth inequality. The first thing I just want you to address, and you've answered this in part, how do you get the British economy to grow? Partly, it seems, by, in your view, investing in science. But spell out for us how, from the point of view of someone on the left, you generate growth. And in a real-world sense, not just philosophically, but if, if Labour become the new party of government later this year, how can they get growth going? So you've got to do two things. You basically, you've got to mobilise more investment into the innovative parts of the economy, but you've also got to devolve economic power to city regions. At the moment, we run everything from Whitehall and Westminster That's a model that has not been working for about 40 or 50 years. And what it means is that all the good jobs, basically, are created in London and the southeast. And so if you look at where all the knowledge intensive jobs are, they're actually they're in London and the southeast. In fact, um, I think it is about 50 percent of the knowledge intensive jobs in Britain are just in London and the southeast. So if you create 
quite a radical shift of power to the regions and you give the regions much more freedom to set up their own institutions, whether that's regional banks or university science zones, um, sort out their local education system so they're training more people with the right technical skills for what their businesses need. That is the way in which you get growth, not just in some parts of Britain, but in every part of Britain. So let's now talk specifically about inequality and how to fix this. Because in the book, and you've hinted at it recently in in one of your answers, you're a big fan of Generation Z, Gen Z. You you think that they are going to change the world. And of course, they've got... Partly because I have three Gen Z kids, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) You've got... They have a big responsibility. And we our generation has a big responsibility. You're slightly older than I am, but we we still have a big responsibility. But Generation Z, I mean, they're facing climate change. They're facing so many different big scale challenges. And yet you are seriously concerned that they are going to inherit serious and entrenched inequality. How do we fix that? So the framework that I use is a framework that was first put forward by um, an economist called James Mead in the 1960s. And James Mead was a Nobel Prize winner. He was a disciple of John Maynard Keynes. Um, He put a lot of Keynes' ideas into practice, invented national income accounting. And he basically spelled out that if you care about wealth inequality, you've got to think about four things. You've got to think about earnings. You've got to think about savings. You've got to think about the returns that you get on your savings. And you've got to think about tax. And and that's a really good list to work through. And I basically use that list and work through some of the best ideas around the world and ask, how could we bring ideas that would fix each of these four things um, here in Britain? And so to help improve wages, my argument is that you need um, businesses to think much more long term and you need businesses to behave more ethically. And the way that you influence that is by harnessing the power of pension savers. So pension savers in Britain have about two trillion pounds of investment. But it's really hard for us to invest in companies that aren't screwing their workers or dodging their taxes or poisoning the planet. And so creating a smaller number of much, much bigger super funds like they have in Canada and Australia that are able to invest in businesses long term would be one way to fix that, coupled with some changes to the boardroom so that you have got people who take a long term interest in the business on the board, like, for example, workers. So there's some rewriting of the rules for the way the marketplace works. I then proposed something called universal basic capital. And this is about making sure that everybody has access to a savings account. Again, this is something that's being actually piloted by a big pension fund at the moment. It works really well. So creating a universal savings account for everybody once they start work is one of the ways in which we can make sure that everybody's got access to the financial services system. And I argue that into that should go a tax break or a savings match for every 25-year-old that should be worth about £10,000 to help them put down a deposit on a home to call their own. The average um, shortfall on a house, on a deposit for a house is about 10 grand. And where would that money come from? Well, that would come from creating a sovereign wealth fund, which is something that 80 countries around the world have done. If you put together about 200 billion, you would have enough to basically give everybody um, that 10,000 pound dividend, every 25 year old, that 10,000 pound dividend each year. And then how would you build that fund? Well, the way that you would build that fund fastest is by restoring fairness to the tax system. So at the moment, if you're, say, Rishi Sunak, and you earn £2 million a year, but you get that money from investment income, you only pay 21% tax. That's half the rate of one in five taxpayers who are paying 40% tax. So if we begin just bringing some fairness back to the tax system, we could actually start raising the money that would help a generation that is doing well pass on 
a bit of an endowment to the next generation to get started in life. And that's, you know, none of these are kind of novel or radical ideas. They're all ideas that have been tried and tested either in Britain at some point in the past um, or in countries around the world. But it's the power, if you like, is knitting them together as a system. And if you put those things together as a system, actually, you could start bringing wealth inequality down. Well, three more questions left. You talk in the book about rough sleeping, about street homelessness. Yeah. Is it possible to end rough sleeping in this country? And is it possible to end homelessness full stop, because homelessness extends far beyond people who are sleeping rough on the streets. It, it definitely is. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time working with the homeless community in Birmingham. I started that work after I lost my dad. So what was a lifelong struggle with alcohol um, back in 2015. And many, most of the people that I met who are sleeping rough, um, like my dad, has had some kind of twist of fate. He fell into the abyss of alcoholism after he lost my mum uh, to cancer when she was when she was my age. But whereas you know, my dad had family and loved ones to catch him. Many of the people that I meet on the streets, you know, don't have that system. And so, again, if you've got decently funded public services, then actually you can get people into accommodation, crucially, with the right support package to keep them in accommodation. And if you've got systems that actually help people buy a home of their own, then you're beginning to give people a stake in society that right now hundreds of thousands of people simply don't have. Before we finish with your sort of assessment of where we are in the build-up to the general election, uh, I will just get, a, a, as I do in these podcasts, get a little bit more of a sense of you as the person. Mm. Part of my question is awkward because, like all of us, you've made mistakes yourself. Mm. And, I mean, just two of them... You, you're, you're quite. You're an advocate for road safety, which is such an important thing to be an advocate for. I mean, one one mistake can change not only someone else's life but your own life. And you advocated, didn't you, for tougher penalties or tougher tougher punishments for people who use their mobile phones while driving? And I think then got caught yourself indeed with a yeah. mobile phone while driving. And then the other sort of more more infamous thing is that you were suspended for two days from Parliament in 2022 for bullying. Can I just sort of get a sense of whether you feel, and this isn't intended to be an impertinent question, but you are on the straight and narrow because you really care, Liam, it seems to me from reading you and listening to you about making the world a better place. And yes, you come from it from the left. You really want people to have better outcomes in life and better opportunities. Yet explain to people how it's also possible to be human and to make mistakes. And the second part of the question is to give us more of a sense of who you are how do you wind down how do you relax what, <laughs> what what sort of are you passionate about outside of politics and i know you have three children you're, you're a married man but outside of family and, and work like what makes you tick so you know i'm, I'm very much the, the the child of my parents i suppose you know my my parents were kind of 60s radicals star-crossed lovers who found each other um during the anti-apartheid movement in in the 1960s and then basically gave their lives to public service at huge kind of personal cost. I mean, I've no doubt at all that, you know, my mum was a teacher in failing comprehensive schools and very tough comprehensive schools. You know, I've no doubt that the pressure of uh, her work during the 1980s contributed to, you know, her tragic early death. My dad was a, a council manager, you know, again, managing a really small council, but important in our town during the, the, the terrible years of the 1980s. And, you know, that that was tough um you saw those kind of sacrifices kind of every day and so when you then go on to to, to lose a, a a parent at such a young age 
that that absolutely does make you impatient and so you know i am definitely guilty at times in my career of being a bull in a china shop trying to do things too quickly neglecting sometimes the feelings of others um, and so i definitely have made mistakes but i hope that what i've been able to do is reflect honestly on those mistakes um, and make amends for those mistakes and nobody is perfect and god knows many of us in westminster aren't perfect but what is important is where errors are made you put up your hands and you say right i got this wrong i'm sorry i'm gonna um do things differently in the future and then you know i'm at this kind of strange position in my life which you know i know you will come to soon but you know my kids have now just sort of left home um so we're me and sarah are now empty nesters and so that gives us you know time to spend together in a way that we've just not had for for years and years and years my wife is a huge country and western fan i'm you know i'm sort of I went to university in Manchester in the in the in the kind of heydays of Manchester, and so my music tastes are very different to her. So she she is basically trying to educate me in country country and western, and I'm I, ha- I have to say I'm finding that I'm finding that a bit of a struggle, but I'm rolling with it. <laughs> are you a football man? Do you, are you a sports man? A bit. I mean, you know, I, I was born 13 miles from Anfield, so you know, I've. Uh, always been a Liverpool fan but I can't I can't say I follow it closely so when you know at, at home we get we tend to go and see West Brom my wife's a West Brom fan and um, her dad actually was one of you know part of that generation that used to be able to walk the players to the stadium and there's a there's a lovely memorial to him at the West Brom grounds where many of the other fans have little memorials so we um, whenever we go and see West Brom we go and see uh, we go and see my father-in-law too. Final question where are we as we approach the general election what do you think Labour's chances are of victory and of a substantial victory? And do you have a hotline to Keir Starmer whereby the <laughs> contents of your book, you're able to communicate to him persuasively? So I think Labour is going to win quite, you know, what the, what, what that looks like. I, I don't know. I mean, we have to remember that we need a swing that is bigger than 1997 just to get a majority of one. So... It is a it is a steep hill to climb. I mean, I think Rishi Sunak will, if he can hold his party together, he will go for as long as he can. Um, but the mood for change, I think, is really palpable in Britain today. People just are so sick of the Conservatives; they want to get them out. Um, and Labour's got to be, you know, fairly cautious in the offer that it makes. People are going to want a lot of reassurance, just as they did in 1997. I worked in Millbank in 1997 when our watchwords were reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. Um, those are good watchwords for today um, as well. Um, and what you tend to find is that once governments are in power, radical, bold, reforming, radical, reforming governments don't do everything overnight. What they need is a three-term project. And so I suppose... The book has been written not as a manifesto for this particular election, but as a three-term project for what Labour could do in office. And I genuinely believe that we could create, recreate, rebuild that wealth-owning democracy in Britain that, frankly, we have lost sight of today. So that's the goal in writing the book. Such an important thing for you guys is to reach over the heads of the populists, isn't it? And say, we actually can offer something that will fundamentally make your life better. Exactly. But you know, cynicism is high and confidence in politics is low. And so what people are basically going to want is actions that speak louder than words. So people know that words are cheap and people will be distrustful, I think, before an election. But through our actions in office, we can basically construct a different story um, that inspires confidence and crucially 
inspires hope for a better future. Liam Byrne, thank you very much indeed for answering my 20 questions. Real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.